Remain standing for our sermon text from the end of Romans chapter 5, and I'm going to read from the handout starting in verse 18. This is God's gospel, so pay close attention to it. So then, as through one trespass there is condemnation for everyone, so also through one righteous act there is for everyone a righteous standing leading to life. For just as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, the law entered in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace superabounded. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray and give thanks for this good news. Oh God, our hearts overflow with the grace that you have given to us and overflow with gratitude for that grace. Help us to know you and to know the good news better today after having meditated on this inspired text that you've given to us, your people. We pray that the the meditations of our hearts, and I pray that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight as you bless the teaching of your word and the hearing of your word. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's good to see you all this morning. I see a, a number of visitors, more visitors than usual this morning. We're glad to have you with us. Here at the end of Romans 5, there are a couple of verses that almost seem to be tacked on by the Apostle as an afterthought. Starting in verse 12, Paul's been expounding on Adam's disobedience and its consequences and on the one hand, and then Christ's obedience and its consequences on the other hand. The sin of Adam led to death and condemnation and continues to do so as it dominates the heart of every human at conception, that sin and death. The righteousness of Christ led, Paul says, or leads, Paul says, to the declaration of righteousness for those who trust in Him. Right? So one leads to condemnation, that's eternal. One leads to justification or righteousness before God, that's also eternal. And in last week's passage, which I read just a minute ago before this week's passage, Paul stated this idea twice, once in verse 18 and then again in verse 19. And we wouldn't blame Paul if he just stopped right there. If he just ended this discussion, a great theological, rich discussion at the end of verse 19. And if he just moved on from there to his next point in Romans chapter 6. Verse 19 would have been actually a great way to wrap up this section on the two Adams. It began back in verse 12. The two men at the head of humanity under 
which every human being uh, belongs or is, right? Either, either Adam is still your head, your covenant representative, and you're guilty in him, or Christ is your head, your representative, and you are righteous in him. He could have stopped, and the point would have been well made. We might even wonder why he adds verses 20 and 21. Why does he introduce, reintroduce actually, so many of the same ideas, the, the ideas of law. Think, look at all the words that he repeats. Law and trespass and sin and grace and death. And he talks about the reign of death and the reign of grace and righteousness and eternal life. And, and so when we ask, why does he introduce these, these words and concepts? It, to ask the question that way points to one of the ways that verses 20 and 21 function in this passage, actually. These two verses summarize what Paul's been saying. That, that's why we see so many key terms that he's already used in verses 12 to 19. But, but verses 20 and 21 don't just point backward. They don't just summarize 12 to 19. They also point forward. In particular, they anticipate the themes in Romans 6 and Romans 7. In some ways, the following chapters in Romans are essentially extended commentary on Romans 5, 20, and 21. But these verses also do a third thing. So that, and that's what we're going to focus on today in our meditation. In addition to summarizing what went before and anticipating what lies ahead, verses 20 and 21 answer a question that arises naturally from what Paul has said in these first, so far, in these first five chapters. He's, he's taught various things about the law in, in chapters 1 to 5, and he realizes that some of his readers may be wondering about his view of the law. Very important thing for the first century Jew, you know, how you understand the law. And so we've seen as Paul's going through, as he's writing his letter, he often stops and addresses concerns or objections or questions. It's kind of what he's doing here. The Jews had some pretty specific views of the law that had developed over time, and not all of them were scriptural. Not all of them were actually rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. They had, it, their view of the law had taken a life of its own and gone beyond scripture. In particular, the Jews believed that God gave the law to help solve the problem that Adam introduced into the world in the Garden of Eden when he chose to sin and disobey the commandment, they, when he trespassed the commandment. They, they didn't imagine that the law all by itself was able to overcome all of the consequences of Adam. That's, that's not what they believed. But they did think that the law was highly instrumental in solving the guilt and the stain of original sin. Okay, So obedience to the law was one, was one avenue for getting back to God and getting right with God. You know, after, after all, why would God have given the law to his redeemed people, Israel, when they came out of Egypt, if, if not to answer the sin problem, the perennial sin problem? It goes all the way back to Adam. And Paul himself used to believe that, that that's what the law was for. Remember, as a zealous Pharisee, he thought his standing before God was dependent on his works and his obedience to God's law. He says in Philippians 3 that he used to think he was a righteous and blameless keeper of the law. 
Before he became a Christian, Paul believed that the law was instrumental in some way in making him righteous before God. Yes, he would have given credence to grace. He would have said it's God's grace, but God uses the law, and my obedience to the law is the means, the instrument that God uses to make me right with him and for me to make myself right with him. And Paul, and also in Philippians, calls that a righteousness of my own. And when he became a Christian, he's, he realized, I don't have a righteousness of my own. I have to have a righteousness from God given to me by grace alone apart from anything that I do. And so as a believer, Paul realizes that the law had never had any power to even minimize sin, the sin problem that we have before God, our guilt, our corruption, our condemnation. In fact, as he looks at his own life, God's law appears to have had the exact opposite effect. So in the flow of Paul's overall argument, we're going to get back to that, in the, in the flow of Paul's overall argument, he's come to the place in his letter where he needs to answer the question, why was the law given? Why did God give the law of Moses at Mount Sinai to his people and we could say to all of humanity? We'll come back to that question in a moment, but before we jump into this text, let's take a very quick look at the outline to orient ourselves and to see how the passage is structured. So we'll see where we're going here. In verses 20 and 21, Paul says basically the same thing in two different ways. He, he also did that in verses 18 and 19, remember? He said something in 18, he kind of restated it, slightly different in 19. He does the same thing here, different topic, uh, but in verses 20 and 21. So I, I tried to reflect this in, in the outline this morning in verse 20. Paul first teaches that sin abounded through the law. But his more important point in the second half of verse 20 is that grace superabounded through Christ. All right, he uses a stronger verb there. And in superabounded is kind of pretty literal. Uh, you know, it's the word for super before a, a verb. Uh, and so he's showing that it's even a greater increase or abounding there. That's what he's driving at. In verse 21, he first says that sin reigned through death. But, but the point he wants to drive home in the second half of verse 21, and, and this is one of the main points of the whole passage, is that grace reigns through righteousness. If we want to simplify the outline even more, we could combine points one and three, and then combine points two and four. In a sense, this is really a two-point passage or two-point sermon. The, the, the first point contained in the first half of each verse is that sin abounded through the law and reigned through death. And the second point contained in the second half of each verse is that grace superabounded through Christ and reigns through righteousness. And so in other words, we, we need to see in verse 20 and 21 a parallel. They're, they're, they're in parallel. With, with each other. They're getting at the same reality. They're pointing us to the same truth. It, they, they form a double witness to Paul's teaching about sin and grace and their respective careers in the lives of God's people. And the storyline can be summarized as grace wins. Grace 
reigns supreme. Grace gets the upper hand for the believer. Grace superabounded where sin only abounded. Grace has dethroned sin and now grace reigns supreme. Paul is telling the story of sin and grace as it relates to every believer, every Christian, every person who has entrusted himself to Christ. So we need to turn to that question we left hanging in the air a couple minutes ago. Why was the law given? What was its purpose? Now, to answer, we need to remember two things. Why it was not given. Why was the law not given? Because we, we can jump into an answer and forget what Paul's already said. He's made it clear that the law was not given as a way to become right with God. Chapter 3, verse 20, For by the works of the law no flesh will be declared righteous before him, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Second, Paul's already made clear that the law was not necessary to condemn us. It wasn't necessary to condemn us. That was the key, one of the key points in verses 12 to 19 here in chapter 5. Adam's sin and our sins that we pile on condemn us apart from the law. Remember, death, Paul says death was already reigning in human bodies and hearts before God gave the Mosaic law. So the law isn't able to make us righteous before God, and the law isn't necessary to condemn us before God. So then what was it for? Why did God give it? Well, Paul answers in the first part of verse 20. The law entered in. Why? So that the trespass might increase. God gave the law to his people so that their sin problem would become bigger, worse. Now, that that does not mean that God is the author of sin, that he condones sin, anything like that, or that he creates sin that wasn't already there. Paul's clear. The purpose of the law was not to solve the situation created by Adam. A problem that we make worse as soon as we are are able to start sinning, which is early on. We're, We're born dead in Adam. And the law does not come even close to solving that problem of our spiritual death. It doesn't awaken us. It doesn't raise us from the dead. It it didn't erase or neutralize or address the sin problem, as many Jews thought it did. Actually, Paul says the law made things worse. And so this is one of those answers. You know, that's Paul's answer to the question, but it's one of those answers that raises other questions. In what sense did the law increase sin? How did it make things worse? Well, it, again, it doesn't mean that God, that, that God or the law created sinful tendencies that weren't already there in mankind. No, what Paul means is that the law intensified things. It intensified the awareness of sin and the seriousness of sin. The law is like a magnifying glass that hovers over sin and makes it more visible. The law doesn't create new sins. It only magnifies sins that are already there. Of course, God doesn't need them 
to be magnified so that he can see them, but maybe we do. Now, the word trespass in verse 20 alludes to the Adam's disobedience. So you'll notice in this text that, that Paul uses a couple different words for sin. He uses the word sin, but then he sometimes uses the word trespass. And that, that alludes to Adam's trespass of the law. Trespass is a disobedience to a law. So here's the law, here's the line, and you trespass it. You go beyond the revealed will of God, the law of God. And, and Adam's trespass introduced sin and de- death into all mankind. So when Paul says that the law increases mankind's original trespass, notice he uses the singular there, it's interesting. He means that the law increases the, 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 the power, we might even say the authority to some extent that Adam's trespass has over humanity. So it, it like magnifies the power. Rather than dethroning sin, the law actually made the kingdom of sin even stronger. And Paul's point here is that it's not too strong, not too powerful for God's grace. But when, when people sin without the law, it's worthy of condemnation. So Paul's not saying you're off the hook if you've never heard of, you know, you never read God's law for, for, for pagans or Gentiles who've never heard of, of the Bible, God's word. They're not off the, God, Paul says it more than once in Romans that if you don't have the law, well, you're still condemned. It's just you're going to be judged apart from the law, whereas people who do have God's word are going to be judged as those who had God's word, God's law. So when people sin against the revealed will of God, we could say it's more, it's even more serious. It's serious before, but it's even more serious. A sin becomes a trespass when, when the law is introduced. And that's why Adam's sin was a trespass. It was serious. God spoke clearly. And, and Paul actually teaches this idea more explicitly elsewhere in Galatians 3.19, where he says that the law was added to create trespasses. It says because of trespass, but the idea is to create trespasses or transgressions. Now, again, not create in the sense that they weren't there, and now they are. God created sin. No, it, it was to take sin that was already there and to highlight it and to make it a trespass because now there's a law, explicit law that's being broken that you can read and hear and that you know it's straight from God's mouth. And so it means that the law turns sin into trespass. Okay? Now, we don't want to be too dogmatic about our categorizations of sin and trespass. There's overlap. They get used in, almost interchangeably sometimes. But here, sometimes Paul does distinguish them to make a point. Trespass is more serious. Trespasses in this context are offensive against offensive to God in a particular kind of way because they're against his spoken law. In Romans 7.13, Paul asks whether the law, which is good, he says, brought death to him. Did the law, the good law, bring death to me? What, do you remember what his answer is? No way. By no means, Paul says. It, it wasn't the law that killed me. It was sin producing, this is quote, it was from Romans 7, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, through the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See how that's working there? We could almost 
paraphrase that, so that sin become trespass. That's how, he, that's how he explains it in other contexts. So the law increases sin by showing it for what it is with that magnifying glass. The law causes sin to be sinful beyond measure, Paul says. And, and we could put it this way. The law turns all of our sins, uh, our sin into a transgression or transgressions like Adam's trespass. What, what made Adam's trespass particularly egregious, what, what, what made it especially offensive to God is that he transgressed God's spoken law. And Paul's saying here that the law has, has the function of turning everyone it addresses into another Adam. Okay, we're, we're Adams sinning against God's spoken law. And so the law has the effect of proving that we're all Adams apart from Christ. When the magnifying glass hovers over our actions and hearts, we're seen for the Adams that we are. Adams with a D. Right? The, the law brings out the true nature and magnitude of sin so that it can be seen for what it is. Now, we shouldn't conclude from Paul's statements here and in Galatians and Romans 7 that I've been quoting and alluding to, we shouldn't conclude that the only or even the ultimate purpose of the law was to magnify sin's presence and power. It's, it's also true that the law was given to impart life. Did you know that? David says that the law is, God's law is perfect, reviving the soul. It brings life if it's interacted with, uh, with faith. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law promised life. That's what he says. It promised life. In Romans 8, Paul teaches that the law was meant to be kept. And he says that you can keep it, not perfectly, but, but he says that he exhorts believers in Romans 8 to keep the law by the power of the Spirit. And so if you have God's Spirit, if you are a born-again Christian united to Christ, then you have the power to obey, not perfectly, but to grow in sanctification, to grow in your obedience to God's law. So God's intention in giving the law was multifaceted. So we, should, we, we, we have to make sure that we avoid reducing the law's purpose to one thing or two things or even three things. Right? That's, that's a tendency is, oh, the law is for this. Oh, no, Paul says it's for that. And we, we get in debates about what it's for. Well, it's multifaceted. In fact, I want to go further. Even in our text this morning, the main purpose of the law is not to increase sin. That's just a means to a greater end. God's main goal, not simply to amplify sin. No, he magnifies sin's power for the greatest, greater purpose of magnifying the power of grace. Let's not miss that. Do, do you see that in the text? God gave the law to serve his gracious intentions toward his people. The law came as a means of grace. It came from a loving God, a loving Father. It was given so that the grace of God might superabound in your life. 
The outpouring of God's saving grace always comes, always comes in connection with a deep awareness of sin. To know the depths of your sin is an uncomfortable experience that we naturally want to avoid. But it's a precondition for salvation. If you're a believer, it's a precondition for personal revival, for growth in godliness. No one ever grows in the Lord apart from seeing old sins in a new light or maybe for the first time. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher from the 20th century, said this, quote, one of the greatest troubles in the church today, notice he's talking about the church, he's talking about believers, not unbelievers, obviously a problem for those who do not know God, do not know their sin, do not know Christ, but he's talking about in the church, one of the greatest troubles in the church today, as well as in the world, is that men do not have a knowledge of sin as they should have. Sin is regarded very lightly and loosely. Men are prepared to admit that they need a little help and that they are weak in this or that respect, but the Scripture teaches the depth and the foulness and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Our fathers, our grandfathers, and especially those who preceded them knew all about this. And it was in such times that great spiritual revivals occurred. It was when men and women realized the depth of iniquity and sin that is in them that they begin to cry out to God. Can you see then how the law, which exposes and reveals and unveils sin, is a means of grace. But it was given, not, the end is not to increase sin. The end is superabounding grace for the people of God, for those who embrace Christ. For no, those who know their, that their iniquity cannot be dealt with through some, some pretty, you know, doing some good works, doing the right thing, treating people well, obeying the law. can't be dealt with. It's too deep for that. You have to have Christ. And the, the law helps us to see that because it helps us to see our sin for what it is. And so I want to ask you, how often do you, to use Lloyd-Jones's words, cry out to God because of your sin, because of your trespasses against what you know is right or wrong. When was the last time your sin and awareness of your sin reduced you to weeping before God in contrition? This should not be a rare occurrence for the believer. We all have much to confess, much to repent of, much to cry out to God about. And if you're a believer, you have much to be thankful for because your sins are greater than you know. Is God's law doing its work of increasing your sin? Right? Is it doing its work of increasing your sin? Are you allowing it to increase your sin? 
and drive you to superabounding grace. As a Christian, you're no longer weighed down by the law as you once were. So you have a certain freedom to allow the law to do its good work in you. You have a new relate. If you're a Christian, you have a new relationship with the law. Before, before, if you're not a Christian, the law is just a burden that condemns and highlights the, the hopelessness apart from Christ. But now, as a spirit-filled Christian, you're freed up to let God's law expose your sinfulness, and because of the superabounding grace of God. In your heart, in your life, in your soul, you're able to repent and do what it says, to turn away from sin, to embrace Christ. And so, fellow Christians, when you're confessing your sins this week, as you ought to do, as we all ought to do, ask God to use his word to magnify your sins, to increase your sins. To shine a light, a spotlight on your sins so that you can see them for what they are, the offense that they are to God. Ask God to search you with his law and to expose your heart. As you're meditating on God's law this week, as you're reading scripture, pray the last two verses of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. As, as a Christian, you can let your guard down and ask God to unveil the depths of your sin by his spirit through his law. You're freed up to let God reveal your layers of sin to you. Because sin doesn't get the last word in your case. It no longer has power and authority over you. It's been defeated by grace. But where sin increased, Paul says, grace superabounded. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness in you. Resulting in eternal life for you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's gospel is that even though sin is deep and wide, deeper and wider than you ever imagine, God's grace is deeper and wider still, infinitely so. James Boyce points out two qualities of this grace that we need to reflect on. First, God's grace is not withheld because of sin. God's grace is not withheld from you because of sin. We need to think hard about that. That doesn't come naturally. For, that's not the way we operate naturally, right? When you and I are offended, we tend to stop showing the offender any natural favor. We withhold smiles and grace and favor that we might otherwise naturally you know, show. If someone offends you badly enough, you might even find it difficult to be civil to that person. But you see, God's grace is the opposite of that. It's counterintuitive because it doesn't work the way 
humans work. It, where sin increases, his grace superabounds. Not, it's not withheld, it's, it superabounds. We witnessed the first instance of God's superabounding grace. The first time it ever occurs, we get to see it because it's recorded in the book of Genesis. Immediately after man's first trespass in the garden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's word. And do you remember what happened after Adam sinned? He and Eve, were, they were afraid, it says, that God would come and basically withhold his grace, as he could have done without being unjust. He could have zapped them, sent them to hell, judged them. Punishment would have been what they deserved. When God came to the garden and called for them, they were hiding in terror. They thought, well, this is probably the day we're going to die physically. And they were already experiencing spiritual death, separation from God. They expected God's heavy hand of judgment. But what did they find? What did they meet? Abundant grace instead. Donald Barnhouse writes, Adam had not gone very far from the scene of his rebellion before the grace of God sought him, called him by name, pursued him in the obscurity of the grove where he was hiding. God did not withhold his grace because of Adam's sin. Instead, he made great promises. The first, the first gospel message is in response to this grace. He made gr great promises promises of grace, announcing that the Messiah would come, the deliverer, the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would destroy the destroyer and bring man back into fellowship with himself, with God. Although man sought to cover his shame with fig leaves, God intervened in grace and clothed the guilty pair with coats of skins the animal skins, in the very garden where they had rebelled. The first blood ever shed upon this planet was shed by God Almighty to provide covering for the man and woman who believed his, wor who believed his word about redemption that would be provided. Grace was not withheld because of sin. Grace was given in spite of sin. End quote. If you're not walking with God, if you haven't returned to God, as Adam and Eve ultimately did after having turned away from God, if you don't know Christ, if you're still in the old Adam, if he's still your, your head, your covenant representative, if you're still guilty in him, you need to know that your sin is no match for God's grace. The worst sins ever committed, all of the worst sins ever committed, all of the sins ever committed, period, are no match for God's grace. The grace that is waiting for you at the cross is far mightier, far more powerful 
than the sin that you are harboring in your heart and that is having dominion over you. You also need to know that the grace of Christ does not require you to fix your problems first. To, to fix that sin problem the way that the Jews thought they could maybe by just obeying the law enough. The, the grace of Christ does not require you to fix your sin problem before you run to Christ for forgiveness. In fact, it requires you to acknowledge that you can't do that. No, running to Christ for forgiveness comes first. That's where the freedom comes. That's where the forgiveness comes. That's where the power comes. The only cure for your sin, anyone's sin, is the blood of Christ. And Jesus never turns away anyone who comes to him in faith and repentance. So God's grace is not withheld because of sin. It overcomes sin. But Boyce's second point was that God's grace is never reduced, never is diminished. He doesn't diminish it because of sin. There's an unlimited supply of grace available. You can't exhaust God's grace, deplete the supply, something like that. It's not as though there is only so much grace to to go around and, and you know, big sinners take a little bit more than other little sinners of God's grace. No, we all need the, the same grace, and that grace is endless and infinite in its supply in Christ. God's grace is a spring that never runs dry. It's a bottomless ocean in Christ. It, it, it didn't have to be that way, but God decided it would be that way and sent Christ to ensure that it would be that way, that that grace would truly be on offer as it is. If you're a Christian, your sin is not, power, not powerful enough to drive God's grace away or to, to keep God's grace at bay. Your sin is powerless to fend off God's grace. If you belong to God, if you're a child of God, the gates of your sin cannot prevail against his grace. Grace always wins when God wants it to. And your sin never reduces the power or the effectiveness of God's grace in Christ. Paul closes this passage in this chapter by comparing the reign of sin through death and the reign of grace through righteousness. Sin and grace are two rulers, two kings. But they have two very different reigns. They're two different kings, two different kinds of king. Lloyd-Jones said, grace always gives whereas sin always takes away. It's a pretty good, concise way of putting it. Grace always gives, whereas sin always takes away. And that's exactly right. We, and we need to unpack it a bit. Grace gives you a throne, as we saw up in verse 17, whereas sin seeks to take it away, remove the throne, take the throne back. 
Grace gives you freedom, whereas sin wants to enslave you, to take your freedom away. Grace leads to life, whereas sin leads to death. Not just physically, eternally, spiritually. So up in verse 17, Paul said that believers themselves reign. That was a couple Sundays ago. Those who have, you can look on your handout though, verse 17, those who have reigned, I'm sorry, those who have received the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Now here in verse 21, he says essentially the same thing, except this time the one on the throne is, is what? It's grace. getting at the same truth from different perspectives. It is by grace alone that you've been given a throne, that you've been given dominion over sin. And it's by grace alone that you stay on the throne and reign on that throne over sin and death. Nothing you did put you on the throne, put you in dominion over sin. And nothing, not even your own sin, has the authority to dethrone you. You reign by God's grace because God's grace is reigning in you and through you, fellow believer. God's superabounding grace has made you a super conquering king over sin and over death. As I mentioned last week, there are some believers and in some ways, all of us fall into this category at some point in our lives, but some of you now, in particular, are not experiencing that reign. Nothing like that dominion over sin. This text encourages us to take back the throne that, is, that God has given to us, not in our own strength. You know, we don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and and do it in our own strength. But by God's grace, you can claim the promise that's true and reckon what is true in Christ. And you can, by the power of that superabounding grace, walk with Christ in victory, in obedience, in dominion over sin. If you're, a, if you're an unbeliever, a similar promise belongs to you if you turn to Christ, if you trust in Christ, if you embrace Christ as your Savior, then you are transferred when you do that from the dominion of sin to the kingdom of light in Christ where there is victory over sin. From Adam to the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the new man, the perfect man. I close with a section from... Romans 6 that expands Paul's point here. Romans 6, verses 6 to 14. We know that our old self, our old man, our old Adam, was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died 
has been set free from sin. If you've died with Christ, you've been set free from sin. It's talking about conversion to Christ, putting your faith in Jesus, being born again. Now, if we have, verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's right now. Let let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, the members of your body, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for bringing us from death to life for raising us from the dead, those who trust in you, for giving us dominion over sin. Help us this week to walk in the newness of life that Christ has won for us and given to us in his death and resurrection. We need your grace. We need your continued grace to sustain us. Please do that even this week by the power of your spirit the power of the gospel, the power of superabounding grace. For Christ's sake, amen.